Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would bless your word to us today as we review it, Lord, as we um, go over it. We ask you to apply it to our hearts, Lord, and show us, Lord, how we might grow by it and submit uh, to it, Lord, today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul had planted the church in Corinth and spent a year and a half there establishing it. And no doubt he had great hopes for the church in Corinth to grow in faith and to be a bright beacon of light in the vast Roman Empire. But after Paul left and moved on, the church in Corinth had floundered somewhat. It didn't become the great witness that Paul had hoped it would be. Instead, it was rather fruitless. And that was likely because many of the Christians there had carried on in the same lifestyles that they had formerly lived before they were Christian. This church's focus was nearly all on grace. And God's grace is a great thing, of course, but there is more to God than grace. This church was quite the opposite of the church in Galatia, which was legalistic. The church in Corinth went overboard on the grace side to the neglect not of legalism but of holiness. And there's a big difference, of course, between the two of them that I might get into later. But the people of the church in Corinth were pres presuming on God's grace, which is something that Christians should never ever do. The idea of personal sanctity, that of their bodies and persons belonging to God, being God's temple and God's possession, and belonging under his authority and in submission to him was never really grasped by the people, the Christians in the, the church in Corinth. It was a foreign concept to them, and that created this problem. The people of the church in Corinth gravitated toward a sort of libertarianism with regard to God and sectarianism regarding the church. They took pride in discussing and defending different concepts and doctrines that were taught, but emphasizing those that they liked best, those that suited their lifestyle best. And one such doctrine began to look sort of like unlimited grace that did not require personal holiness. And that false doctrine could be taken to the extreme to say, sin in a Christian exhibited God's abounding grace. But Paul in his letters to them set out to correct them of this error and to warn them. He told them the truth, that their sin actually inhibited God's grace. And Paul was frank, writing this in 1 Corinthians 5.1, There is sexual immorality among you, and such as is not even named among the Gentiles. Gentiles meaning pagan nations. And he went on, and you are puffed up. You see, they had been proud of their church's tolerance of sexual immorality. 
thinking that God's grace takes care of it. It covers it or, or overlooks it. But Paul was saying, not so, not unless and until it is acknowledged and repented of. Then, of course, God's grace is abounding. But if sin is not remorsefully and obediently turned away from, and Jesus' blood appreciated and applied to the sin and guilt sacramentally, then God's grace is to no avail. Paul being their spiritual father, something like what we would call a bishop in our church, had actually given an order to the church about the particular person in their congregation who was involved in the sin that he had referred to. He said this, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now we might say, whoa, that's quite the order. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? Yes, that's what he said. That's, and that's a really heavy one, isn't it? Can you imagine our Bishop Charlie giving such an order to our church? It's really hard to imagine, isn't it? But Paul said that because he loved and he cared for both the sinning person in the church and the church itself as a whole. He cared for them both very deeply and he wanted the best for them. He said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That was the ultimate goal that that person might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in other words, let that person's body be destroyed in this world if that's what it takes for him to repent of his sin and be saved. And yes, that's heavy, but how much worse to ignore or tolerate the sin to the destruction of that person's spirit. That man was presuming on the grace of God in Jesus Christ and not respecting or valuing Jesus's sacrifice. And I'm sorry for you if you do not believe this, but not appreciating Christ's sacrifice is what sends people to hell. Well, Paul went on from there to rebuke the Corinthian church. He wrote, your glorying is not good. In other words, your pride, the pride that you have in your tolerance of sin is wrong. And that's because God doesn't tolerate sin. That's the reason why Jesus came and died in our place for our sin, because God does not tolerate it. He must judge it. And therefore, the Corinthian church in tolerating sin was misrepresenting God. Sin must be exposed, must be repented of, and dealt with with the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What he is saying is that sin will affect the whole body, the whole church. If you allow it to go on like that, it will affect everyone. And unfortunately, I've personally witnessed this very thing in a church that I used to attend, and it didn't end well. I'll tell you the story if you allow me. When I was working as a hospital chaplain in my training, I ran into a woman from the church that I had been associated with before, and she and, and this church that I still attended when uh, I went on vacation in the summer. And this woman had some great news for me. She told me that her husband, whom we have been, had been praying for, for many years had finally given his life over to Christ and he was a newborn believer and was attending church with her, the church that I attended in the summertime. And I was thrilled with that news and rejoiced with her that day. But months later, when I went to visit that church, I was shocked as I looked down from the balcony to see another Christian man in that church who I knew with his arm affectionately around that woman in the pew and her husband seated a row or two behind them. Well, I couldn't believe my eyes. So when the service was over, I, I called them outside to find out what was going on. And I was shocked again at what I, I, was, at what I was told. She was in the process of divorcing her husband, the man who, who was recently saved, and was dating the other one from the same church. And that was condoned by the pastor and leadership of the church. Well, I confronted the pastor as well and objected. And, and then I went even over his head to his superior when he didn't change in condoning this. And I wrote an open letter to the congregation to post on their bulletin board saying pretty much the same thing that Paul told the church in Corinth. A little leaven will leaven the whole bunch. Don't think that this will not affect the rest of you if you allow this type of sin to go on without confronting it. Well, they allowed it and many marriages in that church were soon afterward destroyed and many people lost faith and left the church and the church was devastated for years afterward. Back to um, our letter of, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Well, Paul wrote to them, in this case, the proper solution. He wrote, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Christ's work on the cross did that work, purged us of our sin, what is referred to as leaven here. Christ's church was purged pure with Christ's sacrifice. He was sacrificed once for all upon the cross. He paid for our sins. So now we must repent of our sins, looking back to his sacrifice as paying for them. And we cannot live as we wish any longer, disregarding the same sin 
that he died for. We can't just ignore it. That would mean disregarding Christ's sacrifice for us and far be it from us to do such a thing. Paul warned the church because he wanted them to be spiritually healthy and to go on experiencing the grace of God even more. They had misunderstood it and they could not experience any more the full extent of God's grace while holding on to that sinful attitude of tolerance towards sin, the very sin that Christ died for. Well, Paul went on to explain something that the church had apparently missed or rejected in the time that he was teaching them in person. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. It's that simple. Again, Paul pulls no punches. He, he loves the Corinthians so much and cares for their eternal well-being too much to gloss things over. So he tells them frankly. And he goes on, For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And this is something that all of us Christians have to understand. We have to get that fact into our heads and our hearts that we are God's holy temple because he is holy and he inhabits us. Later on in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Apparently, they didn't know that. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And we'll pick up that uh, passage later on. But right now, I want to stay in 1 Corinthians uh, 5. And in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 9 through 11, Paul explains things to the Corinthians in a more practical uh, in, in more practical terms things that perhaps uh, they actually contended with him over after his first visit perhaps and he says I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, he wanted to make it clear that he was not telling them to isolate themselves from the world. For example, like perhaps the Amish communities. No, um, he was saying, no, as Christians, you're to live among the people of the world as witnesses of God, of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose in this world now. Verse 11, but now I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or 
an idolater or uh, reviles or a drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Christians being a poor witness of God was and is an issue. It was an issue for them and it's an issue for us and it is, a, it is seriously negative stuff for the church. It affects the whole body of the church and it also affects those who are watching us. Sin is sin and sin is always against God. And these Corinthians, these uh, Corinthian Christians seem to be in the thick of it. So much so that Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 8 to 12. You yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he makes his point. And such were some of you. That's what they had been. So much so that in the past, uh, someone could have uh, been identified in that, uh, in that community by their sinful behavior before they joined the community, I should say. If someone would ask, who is John Doe? Someone could answer them, oh, he's the drunkard, or he's the adulterer, and so on and so on. But afterward, after they were purified by Jesus' sacrifice and accepted that for their sins with thankfulness, things were supposed to be different and noticeable to others as they allowed themselves the Corinthian church, the, the people in that church, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, with Christ in them, uh, by the Holy Spirit, and working through them in how they lived, what they did. Their identity was to be found in Jesus Christ, who is pure and who purifies those who submit their lives to him. And when someone would ask then, who is John Doe? Isn't he the one who, you, yes, that was who he was, but that's not him any longer. He used to be a drunk, but now he always stays sober. He used to run around, but no longer, not since he met Jesus. Now he behaves like Jesus, having his spirit in him. But you were washed, Paul writes, but you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is why they should be different. But again, they erred in how they did, how I explained earlier, and that was bringing them uh, that direction. Well, then likely referring to either a poor argument that the Corinthians were using to justify their action, and maybe even a quote from, from Paul that was taken out of context, Paul says this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, but all things are not helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. There was likely no secular law in Corinth against uh, many of the things that Paul listed in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6 and in other places. But as Christians, the, the people of the church in Corinth were now to be governed by something higher than their local governing laws. They were to be governed by the Holy Spirit that was within them, God's Spirit. And they were under, or they were supposed to be under, the law of the Spirit, which is the law of love. And all things, as we know, are lawful within their proper and God-intended purpose and God-intended usage. Food, for instance, is to be enjoyed for the nourishment of the body, but it can still be enjoyed, but it is not for gluttony. Wine, too, can be enjoyed properly, but it's not to be indulged in, in drunken, drunkenness. That would be abusing it and abusing the body it's put into, the temple of God, and, and showing contempt for God by, by doing so, by putting... Um, in an excess which brings the body into an uncontrolled state that endangers both it and those around it. That kind of behavior also destroys our witness of God. And we can say similar things about all those things, about sex even. Sex is to express love and unity between covenanted spouses, male and female, in a way that can procreate children when the two are of that age. But the things Paul listed, all of them, have selfish and addictive spirits attached to them as well when abused. Spirits that bring a person under their power and render them helpless and hopeless if they, um, if they abuse uh, these things in ways that are not meant by God, and that and they will be under that bondage until they are delivered by Jesus Christ, because it's it's the power of these evil spirits at work that overpowers our ourselves until Jesus delivers us. Well, Paul goes on in verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Both food and the stomach are for the purpose of physical health while we live on this earth. But both of them have an expiration date, so to speak. And there will be no need for either food or the stomach in the afterlife. They are made for one another here on earth. They have no other purpose, no eternal um, value in them. The body, however, as a whole is different. It is relational and it is eternal as it will be changed by God into a heavenly body with holy purposes. Paul wrote, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You see, because the Lord will change and raise up our bodies by his power, they are holy even now. And that's their ultimate purpose, to be changed and to raise, be raised up with him to his glory. And that transformation process is actually already happening. It's already at work in us if we are Christians. We have been justified and we are being changed. We are being sanctified uh, day by day, looking at Christ and, and with his spirit living through us. And someday we will be glorified as well. Paul goes on in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Our bodies being joined to Christ by faith in his atonement are already members of Christ, members of his body, holy and eternal already. And so to make his point clear and understandable, Paul asks this. He says, shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Of course not. Should I bring a holy member of Christ together with an unholy body, someone who has never appropriated um, or accepted God's, Jesus' sacrifice for them? No, certainly not, Paul says. Or do you not know that he who joins, who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, quoting scripture. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's it. You can't be one spirit with Christ and one flesh with a non-believer that you are not covenanted to in marriage. It just doesn't work. It will break you up. There is, however, provision set out in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16 and 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2 for those who are covenanted in marriage to non-believers. That's different and we won't get into that today. But Paul goes on in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And that can mean his own physical body or the greater spiritual body of Christ as well, the church. Either way, it is sinning against the body. Remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And the same could be said of other sins. It could be said of gluttony or drunkenness or abuse of any sort if it goes on and is continually ignored or tolerated uh, in either the person or the church community it is destructive paul goes on with the scripture that i already quoted earlier or do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and you are not your own 
And that's the key to all of this. Verse 20, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's what the Corinthian church did not understand. But I ask you today, did you, do you understand that? Do you get what he is teaching here? If you are a Christian, both your body that you call your own and your spirit that you call yourself, both of them belong to God. The problem, of course, is that we often forget that. We think that because we make our choices, because we control what goes in and out of our bodies and, and we control how we use our minds and bodies, we think that they belong to us. We can do with them as we please. Well, maybe it's time we got over that. Maybe it's time we gave control of all those things over to God. What we think, what we do, how we live, and not go our own way any longer. That's how God's grace is going to be fully upon us. The Corinthians did not understand that. That was the problem with them. And that's what Paul was dealing with and talking about to the Corinthians here. And if it just goes on that way, God's grace will be in vain. So Paul writes, we then as workers together with him, with God, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's Paul's main point. There is a godly purpose in receiving God's grace and that purpose is to glorify God with our bodies and with our minds and with our spirits. And it's not to gratify ourselves and to continue to fulfill our sinful desires. That's just wrong. That presumes on God's grace and is not appreciating Christ's sacrifice for our sins. You can see the Corinthian church had it all wrong claiming Christian liberty since Jesus paid for it all just to justify their lack of morality and their lack of submission to the Holy Spirit. And they were just simply presuming on God's grace as they went on dishonoring themselves and dishonoring God. And some were actually accusing Paul of restricting God's grace in him in his telling them what he had concerning godly morality. And they had that wrong too, of course, as Paul explained in 2 Corinthians uh, 6.12, today's text that I never got into actually, um, saying, you are not restricted by us. You're not restricted uh, by us, you know, laying down the law here, but you are actually restricted by your own affections, their own sinful affections. In other words, they were the ones who were restricting God's grace to be extended um, more and more in their lives by their sinful lifestyles. That was actually what was causing God's grace to be ineffective in their lives. Paul didn't want that for them as any good 
pastor or bishop wouldn't want that for for their the people underneath them so so Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 6:14 saying this do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God as God has said I will dwell in them and walk among them I will be their God and they shall be my people therefore come out from among them and be separate says the Lord do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty so this is the way that God wants to bless us his children by his grace but his grace is restricted when we do what we want to do against his will and against his spirit and it's not only that it is also damaging of our witness of him to the world around us. As Christians, we must be distinct, and that distinction is godliness. It is holiness. It is allowing God's Spirit to live in us and through us by his standard, not ours. And that is what holiness is. That is not self-righteousness, which is our standard, but holiness is God's righteousness worked in us by Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit who he sent. The Holy Spirit that we must submit to and live by. If we have and are led by the Holy Spirit within us, our lives should reflect the family likeness of our Father God who sent his Son, our brother Jesus, who died for us and we will be blessed with his grace glorifying him in this world let's pray lord god again we thank you that lord you give us all all the answers in your word and by your spirit as we yield to you as we submit our our hearts and our lives to you and as we ask you to do that work that we cannot do ourselves we thank you that you are holy and Lord, you, you choose uh, when, we, when we receive your sacrifice, when we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who, who you sent to, Lord, to, to, to do away with, to forgive, to cover our sins, to atone for our sins. Lord, when we accept that sacrifice, it pleases you to come and dwell in us, Lord, and to make us holy. And we thank you so much that that you are so good and loving and care for us that much, Lord. Help us, Lord, to, to love you back with the love you first gave us and allow you to do that sanctifying work that you intend to do in our hearts and the glorifying work someday as we see you in heaven. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.